This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. I'm Ewa Messer. I'm the producer and host of Poured Over and Ramona Osville. I'm so happy to see you. This all I'm came so about. I'm so happy to be here. Very quickly. And I'm so, so happy to talk to you about The Last Animal because the book's been out for, what, a month and a half? A month, a little over a month. Yeah. Okay. And we got to talk about the woolly mammoth before we talk about the women. But I love the idea of this book. I love what you do in this book. But we have to talk about Pearl for a second. Can you just explain where she came from? Because that's going to get us to Jane and the girls and Helen and everyone else. Yes. So my when my second child was born, she was a couple, maybe a couple months old. She was this little thing. And she fell asleep on my chest. And I had this rush of feeling of like that I was holding onto a creature that had never existed before in the world. And she was mine to care for. And I loved her, even though I didn't yet know who she was. And then, but she was asleep and you got to get your things done. So I opened my laptop to do some work. And this story <laughs> popped up about scientists working to de-extinct various creatures, including the woolly mammoth. And I felt like, A, why are humans? We are like, why do we have to do the most complicated, expensive thing every time? Why can't we just take care of what is in front of us? But also... Oh, that's kind of sweet. We're we're trying to replace something instead of just erasing it all the time. And then I thought, like, there will be a real mammoth. There were a, a gene-edited elephant, and it will be somebody's job to take care of that animal. And in that like constellation of feelings, I thought, like, there's a there's just, I don't know how this will work. I don't know what the story will be, but this is definitely the land of a novel because there's all the hope and sweetness and all the potential unintended consequences. And all the hubris and like, yes. So I knew it would be, it was a couple of years before I really started writing, but Mm -hmm. it all grew out of that kind of like knot of complex feeling. You've snuck in a giant political novel. I know. a story of mothers (laughs) and daughters and a woolly mammoth. And I love this so much. I love the voices of all of the women in this book. And specifically, we're really talking about Jane and her two daughters. She's got a 15-year-old and a 13-year-old. Eve and Vera, and I have to say, you write teenagers really well. (laughs) They are wildly frustrating and super real. (laughs) They're great. These girls are great. But Jane is a scientist. She's a graduate student. She's a scientist. Her husband has died the year before. The girl's father has died the year before. He, too, was a scientist, and he's off doing his research and has a car accident. And one of the things I've been dying to ask you, pardon the bad choice of words there, considering what we're talking about, but (laughs) is her husband's death the thing that allows Jane to do what she does in this book? I'm trying to dance around some of the choices she makes, because obviously I want people to be able to read this without, you know, spoilers. But part of me feels like grief is the thing that is pushing her forward. Yeah, yeah, I think it really is. I think that a a kind of black hole opens up in their family when he dies that they not only do they lose a person, each of them loses this major figure and person in their lives. It also has changed the shape of their family from a square to a triangle. And they, and it's, so it has like rearranged the universe and Mm -hmm. it has created this vacuum of feeling and need and desire and understanding and they begin to kind of circulate around that black hole. So instead of 
the constellation moving however it moved before. Now it's like, we're just circulating, circling this grief, Mm. circling this loss, trying to figure out who we each are, who we are as a family, and how in the world we're going to survive going forward. So all of them, each of the daughters and Jane, are asking significant questions about the practicalities. I mean, Jane was was used to being sort of the second income. She, her husband had, he was older. He had been working a lot longer and was much more established in his career. And she had gone back to school to be a paleobiologist later in life, was not planning to be the sole earner in her family, was not planning to establish every single thing that everybody ever needed forever after. And her daughters were not planning on being raised by somebody who didn't know who she was yet and didn't have space to take care of them. So the whole thing is like, how how are we supposed to move forward? And all kinds of desperation and need grows out of that. Part of the dynamic that I really love, though, between Jane and her daughters, too, is Jane's surrounded by a bunch of dudes who even go so far as to take credit for some of her work, which I'm just going to keep making faces at that. But here she is trying to show her daughters how to be women in the world, right? Mm-hmm. 13 and 15. Obviously, they're still young girls, but she's trying to set an example. And it's they're kind of looking at their mom with a raised eyebrow going, what is this mess? Mm-hmm. Like you're supposed to show us how to do this and you're just giving in to the annoying, like, what is this? They have no context yeah. for their mother in that environment. And it's really kind of wild to watch. Yeah. I'm wondering what that's like for you writing it because, I mean. Yeah, well, I I mean, you could imagine that I bring some personal experiences. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm sure you do too. <laughs> we all do. No, no, this never happens. Nothing like this ever happens. But that feeling of just being unnoticed or unseen or unappreciated or having something that you made sort of subtly moved across the table to somebody else's space. Like I, I work in academia and it's a very different thing. And I work in a very supportive English department, but I also work in a big bureaucracy. And I think the entire, the entire system is designed in a very particular way. And it has been going that way for a long time. And even if we have very good intentions to change it, it's just so rooted. And we're all, we're all up against that every day, all the time. So I came in knowing that that felt like a really important piece to me, Mm -hmm. but the book opens as Jane has taken her daughters on this work trip, this research Mm -hmm. trip to Siberia. (laughs) And She's only taking them because she has to, because there's nobody else at home to take care of them. In another version of life, she would have left them with their dad for a couple of weeks while she went and did this. She's not intending to give them life lessons, but she has to because there they are. And they're also getting to see kind of behind the curtain of her work life in a way they wouldn't have otherwise. They don't normally go to work with her. They're old enough to most of the time stay home. So they're seeing things that she's not used to being public or being seen by her family members. And all this kind of crackle starts to happen. So they're watching as the men ask her to take notes for them instead of doing any offering her own observations. And when the girls discover something in the permafrost, Mm -hmm. it is they watch as as it sort of starts to get claimed by other people in the group. And so they're like, wait, mom, what is this? And she's sort of like, well, but this is just how it is. I don't know what you all are planning to do, but the way I was raised is we don't even try to go in the front door. We just look for a door on the side. That's how women are going to get anywhere is by sneaking in through a side door. 
And the girls are like, we're not, we're going to break the door down though. And you should too. But what, I don't know, it's complicated. That is one of the things I love about Jane too, because I do think she's sort of throwing her hands up at the universe. She's really, she's mad. She's a little afraid. She doesn't know what's happening. There's just a lot of pressure on her in a way that absolutely the year before had not been there. So the idea that she's kind of throwing up her hands and saying, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do all of these things that make for a great story, but also make for a very stressed out mama. Right, exactly. (laughs) But it's sort of, I think, I think one of the things that came through for me, for her, with her is that she, every version, no matter what she does, is deeply and incredibly complicated. There's no choice she could make that would be simple or clear or even have a guaranteed outcome. So the crazier decisions start to seem like only incrementally crazier than what she's supposed to do, which is just like barely bare bones survive in a big California university and city that's incredibly expensive, raising children on her own. Like that is already a nearly impossible seeming prospect. So like, why not try something else too? Why not like take a big risk and yeah, yeah. Yeah, totally take that swing because part of it too is the way we talk about motherhood, right? Like, and you've done this in your earlier work too. There's the the second book, the story collection, A Guide to Being Born, where actually <laughs> I can see some of the roots of some of <laughs> this work in that book. And I'm not going to say more than that because you know exactly what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to ruin it further because if I say the name of the story and what's going, chaos. which we don't want, but I will say like, I can see the thread and, you know, the way we talk about motherhood in society and where women fit on that, like you're supposed to want this no matter what. Right. And yet it's weird. It's scary. Your body goes through stuff that like, what? I mean, all of it. And then you have a tiny person and you have one job, which is to make sure the tiny person becomes a person of their own. And it's just like, wait a minute, what? all of this, right? And so watching Jane watch her tiny people and figure out what her tiny people are doing, (laughs) wild, but it's also very funny. And I don't want to lose sight of the funny because this is hard to do, right? You're talking about grief and loss and family and all this stuff. And yet you're wicked funny. (laughs) You are wicked funny. So I want to talk about balancing that in the voice though, because I mean, you have to push your characters, right? Because otherwise there's no story, but I mean, the funny. (laughs) he's really good (laughs) here's the thing that i think about humor i feel like it is completely necessary to our survival i don't think it's a sideline to all any any aspect of our humanity or our species is we need it we use it it's a survival mechanism i mean think of any funeral you've ever been to there's you ever you're definitely gonna laugh it's partly that like sort of nervousness and trying to dispel a little of the stress and fear and sadness and leave me sort of like cut a little air hole for it to go through. But it's also when we feel one thing, we often feel another thing too. So when you're feeling a loss, there's often sort of like this upwell that comes with it. And I feel like there's something so beautiful about that to me and so real and true. And to be in this state of extremely elevated feeling when the world is sort of collapsing around these mother and daughters and they've lost their husband and father and they are reinventing themselves and the girls are growing up. They're like 13 and 15, that age, which is 
you're already in so much transition and right. everybody's watching you do it and observing you. And you're no matter what you do, you're definitely doing something mm-hmm. wrong for sure. According to all the adults. So like all that is happening. What else are you going to do, but make a joke about it? Like oh, help. <laughs> also to the gap between 13 and 15 may as well be the grand Canyon. I mean, there's some ages where yeah. like, you know, 17 and 19, 19 and 21, eh, you know, maybe not, right. but like, that little girl versus young woman. like Yeah, totally. It's a chasm. It's an absolute chasm. So the idea that you've got these two sisters sort of flipping back and forth between sort of a game that they've shared since since they were tiny, tiny, and now kind of like poking each other, but also being very funny about it. And like, what's mm-hmm. wrong with you? It's not all comic relief, but it's close because there's some absurdity that I wasn't quite expecting. (laughs) So I want to talk about crafting this book though, because I mean, you could have, if you had written this novel straight, right? Like let's take the woolly mammoth out Mm -hmm. and it's Mm -hmm. mothers and daughters and, Mm -hmm. you know, stuff that's really fun to read about, but you're sort of breaking the mold or I should say you're totally breaking the mold when you do this (laughs) and tossing us into some situations. But are you working straight from an idea you playing with voice like where's this starting for you and how are we getting there like you're not, i know you're not an outliner i know that much from research but yeah can we talk about the construction of, because also the timing in the book is really good and the like the pacing is great oh good well i'm so happy to hear that That's <laughs> i'm not an outliner i wouldn't say that plot is ever what i come in it for plot for me is a is a way to reveal character and feeling. So the only reason I'm interested in an event is to discover what it does to everybody. So as I thought about the beginnings, trying to remember the sort of sequence of events, Mm -hmm. but I knew, I knew that there was going to be some absurdity in this sort of like crazy unfolding um, Mm -hmm. with this animal. I have just learned to trust the characters to, to like show me around. So I'm like, let's go, let's go see what we see. And I, I had been doing a bunch of research about the mammoth de-extinction project. And I came upon this travelogue of a bunch of scientists that went to Siberia to go exactly as it occurs in the novel up mm-hmm. to a point where you know, they're going to look at the permafrost. They're going to hold the scientific justification for de-extinction is that all of the Arctic was supposed to have megafauna and did have megafauna for forever and ever and ever until about 5,000 years ago, the last mammoths died out because of us. Meanwhile, without them, the landscape has totally changed. So trees have grown up and there's not enough, there's not enough big animals eating the grass, fertilizing the grass and taking care of the grass and removing all of the big stuff by tromping and knocking and doing all their big animal things. So now the permafrost is melting more quickly than it would have if we had this sort of like cozy insulating blanket of grass. We need the megafauna back so that we can recreate that blanket so that the permafrost melts less quickly, so that carbon is, stays in the ground, et cetera. Save the world. I had that image of this group of scientists going to Siberia, and I felt like, well, that's a perfect entry point. So I sort of knew it was mm-hmm. going to start there. But mm-hmm. after that, so many things shifted and changed as I was working on the level. And there, there's this also sort of inconvenient fact of, an, of elephant gestation being somewhere between 18 and 24 months. So <laughs> if you're going to get a baby elephant... I was like, oh no, <laughs> that, but then the whole novel has to cover 
that entire amount of time, but I don't really want to write, like I didn't want to write an epic, you know? Those were, those are all the tricky things in the construction of like learning how to accordion things in and out so that they take up the correct amount of narrative space Mm -hmm. without glossing over too much or without you being like, wait, two years just passed? What are we talking about? At one point in my novel writing life, I hated and I felt like stupid novels. They're so long and mean and they're here to torture me. (laughs) And now I feel like, okay, that's a puzzle. That's fun. All right. So we're going to have to figure out how to make that feel Mm -hmm. true and right and real. And we we will, we'll figure it out. It, It might take us, you know, a few years, but we'll get there. Because your first book was a novel. No one is here except all of us. Mm-hmm. Then we had Guide to Being Born, then Sons and Daughters of Ease and Plenty, mm-hmm. and then Away Land. So you yeah. alternate, and now Last Animal. So you've alternated yeah. novels and stories, though, which I find kind of fascinating. Yeah. Um, just purely from a bookseller standpoint. And I'm just <laughs> wondering, listen, I love short stories and I'm always delighted to see them, but that's not necessarily, like some people decide... I'm just going to do one or the other, or I'm going to do, you know, several novels and then a story collection. And I'm just, I'm wondering about that pattern um, because you and I both know you do very different things with stories in a novel. I want to talk about that difference because your first allegiance is always to emotional truth and it Mm -hmm. comes out differently. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Which is why I thought I'm a true story writer. If you want emotional allegiance, like short fiction is your land because you don't owe anybody anything. You can write something that is six pages or 40 pages. You can go huge. You can cover a thousand years or you can cover 10 seconds. And it feels like it's all about people. It's all about the care of the sentence. Like you get to just revel in the language and make every paragraph perfect. And so I felt like I was, I really was a story writer. But I understood that apparently in the world, people like to read novels. Novels sell better. Publishers like novels. So I was like, okay, fine. I'll learn to write a novel. I'll try <laughs> against my will. Mm-hmm. So I wrote No One Is Here Except All of Us, sort of like I felt like I had handcuffs on in a way, ever. Right. And if anybody had ever said in that process, it's fine. You know what? Actually, all anybody wants to read are stories now. I would have been like, phew, thank you. I quit the novel game and I am a story writer forever. But In the writing of these three novels, I have really learned to love the long form. I feel like it's like a second life that I live. Mm -hmm. The novel lives with me over years. The Last Animal took, it was like really three years of really, really writing with the sort of tail ends of, of considering the writing and then the, you know, editing process and all that. Meanwhile, during those three years and the edges, I was doing the dishes and picking my kids up from school and moving from California to Colorado and all of the things were happening and teaching my classes and living my life. But in my mind, I got these three women, they got to, they hung out with me and I thought about them and I gave them anything that came through my life that felt like Mm -hmm. it was useful to them. I got to be like, Hey, we're bringing this over here. And anything that they thought of, they're often like the membrane goes both ways. So Mm -hmm. things would happen on the page that ended up being really useful to me in my real life. What an amazing thing to get to do, to live in those two places and to get to escape the pandemic by being like, we need, uh, we need <laughs> to go to Italy and we yeah. not get on an airplane. Right. So here we go in the novel. Like, yes, thank you, fiction. It's just, yeah. One of the best parts of fiction is being able to travel without leaving wherever yes. you are. And yeah. But it is also one of the things I appreciate in Last Animal. I mean, we're in Iceland at one point. We're in Siberia at another. The Italy stuff is hysterical. But the idea 
that you don't have to be limited to sort of X play. And and I do. I also love novels where setting is a character. You know, it's mm-hmm. Me too. the sense of place is so ferocious that you're like, of course, I know exactly where I am. Mm-hmm. But in this case, the way the sentences swing, and again, I know I mentioned sort of the pacing of how everything unfolds. I couldn't believe how quickly I read this book. <laughs> and there was that moment of, wait, you can't leave yet. I'm not done with you. <laughs> Because it really, it it flies. And I'm wondering how much of that comes out of the editing, though. Because especially when you come from being a story writer, you can't be sloppy. Mm-hmm. Like you really, you just can't. A, a sloppy story, you're just like, oh, this hurts. I can't. Yeah. And you just have to put it away and just be like, maybe you come back to it, maybe you don't. But with a novel, you do kind of have a little more space to make mistakes. And <laughs> I don't feel like you waste words in the last animal and i don't feel like there's any fat in this book which is not something i haven't get to say but how much of that is you know sort of as you're drafting and how much of that is oh, i gotta go back and fix it <laughs> that's such a good question i think it's all of that so i started out even before i wrote short stories i was a mm-hmm. poet and i so i think oh, i've always okay. felt like what I really care about in love is mm-hmm. the individual images and sentences and the way mm-hmm. language becomes a like energetic force. That mm-hmm. is like at, when I'm writing, if I have to roll my sleeves up and make plot happen and I'm like using my like front brain to be like, yeah. what is the puzzle and how does it work? My heart is there for the language and the, the images. So that's really important because it means that I'm that I'm like working from the small to the big. I love reading people, the sort of like maximalists who will go on, there'll be a, like 17 pages about the way the wardrobe had been constructed. I'm like, that's wonderful. I love that. That's not how I think. So mm-hmm. I, I think I also write kind of toward the more abbreviated all the way through. Right. And still there's always, there's always a lot that gets cut toward the end, especially. And in like in the, in the problem of the two-year elephant gestation question, that section, the two year, the sort of in-between intervening section was got shorter and shorter and shorter in every draft. At first I thought, well, I have to write all this and figure out what it is and what happens to everybody in that time. And then once I had figured out what happens to everybody in that time, I was able to kind of winnow it back to, like so that you get the essence of it. But you don't need to read the every season, you know, you just get the 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 like big wallop of the sense. Yeah, I have to say I do appreciate the fact that I didn't have to wait sort of the full and again it goes back to the movement of the story right like mm-hmm. if you're working in short fiction you don't actually have the luxury of playing with time in quite the way you do with the novel yeah. right yeah and so you know emotional truth or not you know the form exists for a reason yeah. right and not every poet though can make the switch into short stories and not every short story writer can make the switch into novels and not every novelist can make the switch back. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. it's wild to me. It does all come down to language, though. And you do some stuff in this book, right? Where, and I know I sort of alluded to it early on when we were talking about this idea that it could have been a mother-daughter story and it could have been, but it's not just the woolly mammoth, right? Mm-hmm. It's totally not just the woolly mammoth. It's other stuff that you're doing and it's other elements that you're bringing in. And like this woman, Helen, who's just like, you know, life doesn't just happen. <laughs> I'm like, hello, Helen. <laughs> Please stay here with me. I'm not entirely clear on how old Helen is, but I feel like she's older than Jane, certainly. Mm-hmm. But I don't mm-hmm. know if I she's so, like, yeah. yeah, 
in her 50s or her 60s. I just know she's older and Jane's what, like in her late 30s. So Helen and Jane as adults and the amount that you get to play there because they play off of each other. They need Mm -hmm. each other. But because Helen's not related to anyone, I sort of feel like there's a freedom there in that relationship that we wouldn't have had otherwise. Like, you know, if Helen had been a great aunt or whatever, grandmother. Rock on, it's fine. Like every character has their plan, but can we talk about Helen for a second? Because I really yes. love her as a character. She's wild. She's just <laughs> she's, totally wild. She was so much fun to write and hang out with. When I showed it an early-ish draft to one friend, mm-hmm. and she her her note about Helen, she was like, Helen is Captain Happen. I was like, Yeah, yeah totally. Oh my exactly. God, she is. She's, she's got money. She's got whatever she needs. She has no children, no responsibilities other than to her own desires. She doesn't even really care that much about taking care of her husband. Mm-hmm. And so she's just like an engine of desire and interest and creation. Consequences are not all that important to her because she feels like she can get out of things. She's not worried about it. And she feels like if she doesn't get out of something, that's also kind of fine with her. And what crazy freedom would that be to have no fear and plenty of resources to make things happen? So when the girls show up at her place, she is like the actual opposite right. of everything their mom is is like made of at this point. She's so scared. She's scared of failing. She's scared of not having enough money to support her kids. She's scared of losing her own identity to suddenly being a, like the, a single mother. She's scared of the future her daughters will have on this planet. Everything is a fear and a weight and she doesn't have resources for anything. So Helen is like this like, wait, whoa, what would it be like? And I think they they kind of start to define themselves in a way by these two counterparts and ask a question about who they could be and how they want to occupy the world this way. Part of what I love about Helen, though, is she is a little clueless about other people without knowing that she's a little clueless about other people. And she's just always moved in the world as Helen. Mm-hmm. And so she's kind of going, well, of course you can do this. And everyone's like, well, actually yes. not quite. <laughs> wait a minute that's not no okay but she's helen's such a good piece it's not quite you know fairy godmother kind of stuff it's not that it's just she's such a presence mm-hmm. in the book like you know she's somewhere on the auntie mame spectrum of things exactly like you're saying as a person of tremendous privilege she's oblivious to many of the rules of the world to what people feel and do to anything she just she can she can construct the world as she likes it so she doesn't have to see anything that's hard or unlikable to her so she brings a lot of tension in that way where you're like oh yeah no that's not how it usually goes and most of us do not have any of these choices and it it feels like you don't i feel like she's not exactly like likable in a way, you know, she's not, yeah. you're like a little, she's a little prickly and a little scary. And also you kind of want to go close to the flame. Oh, to- are you kidding me? I totally, <laughs> I always, uh, I always offer the flame. <laughs> me too. I know. <laughs> but part of what I'm thinking about too, is one of the, one of the ideas that you're playing with throughout last animal, right? Is this idea of <laughs> invisibility lady cloak which is a line I love. And even Helen, even Helen with all of her privilege and all of her money and all of her access to everything, she's still invisible. Mm -hmm. She's outside of her immediate environs, actually outside of Jane and the girls. 
Like her husband's kind of doing his own thing. He's like, whatever. And then this party that she throws, it's kind of like, well, who's the party for? She's kind of playing with all of these moving parts and no, she's still invisible. And it's not just age and it's not just being a woman, but it's the combination. I mean, Jane certainly is invisible to her male colleagues and the girls are trying to figure out how not to be invisible. And well, you know, yeah, yeah. that 13 year olds and 15 year olds make, <laughs> which sometimes is a little horrifying. Yes. And the invisibility is complicated because yeah. they all sort of discover the, some of the benefits of it too. Like what mm-hmm. if, what would you do if you weren't being watched? What would you make if you sort of had a little bit of space around you and people were not, were, were going to look overlook you, even if they were looking at you, if they don't even see you, why are we so concerned what they think? So Mm -hmm. there's sort of this like question that arises. Why do you even want to be seen? What do you want to be seen for? What is the purpose of that visibility? Where, where do you want to be on display and to display yourself and to ask and to ask for the light to be shown on you for good reason? And when do you want to be like, I'll take the shadow actually right now, because I can, I can make something happen if nobody else cares. And sometimes it's other women yeah, that you're invisible to. And that's the piece of it where it's like, you know, we talk a lot about sort of, you know, sisterhood and all this kind of stuff. And it's like, well, actually, yeah, yeah. Stuff doesn't always come together quite the way. I mean, and really watching Jane and the girls figure out what's important to them, mm-hmm. what they value most is is obviously the heart, the heart of the last animal. But you give them space to be messy and you give mm-hmm. them space to be prickly and you give people space to be angry. And it's like all of these things that and you just use the likability word, which I have huge issues with. Like, I yeah, don't care exactly. Because you're likable. Like, why is this even a conversation? And it's always really about female characters. It's never always, yeah, really about men. And I don't need my characters to be likable. I need them to be interesting. I need them, I need the overall narrative voice to hold on to me and and keep me sort of pushing me through whatever I'm reading. And if the voice isn't there, it doesn't matter. Yeah. About the, like it nothing matters if the voice isn't there. And I guess you could argue that voice is character and character is voice, but I think narrative voice is its kind of own thing, regardless of what POV you're taking. I yeah. I am so like that too. I feel okay. like, yes, I will open a book and I'm like, if it doesn't feel like there's a voice, I'm not, even if the story is very interesting, it's not going to be mine. Right? Not, yeah. Yeah. It's so pleasurable to be reading something that has that is like everything it's made out of, not just the ideas held within, but the actual mm-hmm. materials, the language materials are living and have mm-hmm. been like created carefully by another mind that I can then take. I'm like, yes, that's why I, that's why I'm a writer. That's why I'm a reader. That's the whole magic for me. Right. Can we talk about some of the writers who've made you Ramona Osabel, short story writer, novelist, poet? I mean, I think you have different influences for all of the different pieces but at the same time you know there's also just a lot of joy in reading other people's work oh so much joy I know I know I always feel like a little bit of a fraud when I try to answer this question because it's like as as if I could know what I was influenced by like all the things that have come in to me over all the years I've been writing and reading like you know every song every NPR interview every like random New Yorker article I do read or skim like the whole 
it's just, it's like all in there and there's some kind of crazy stew happening. Mm -hmm. And I almost don't feel like I could ever know what the answer to that question is. And yet (laughs) there are definitely some, (laughs) and there's some sort of early moments that I remember in college, I was a creative writing major and I took a, I was taking a modernism class where I was reading Ulysses Mm -hmm. and I, my fiction professor gave me um, Pastoralia by George Saunders. And we were reading a whole bunch of crazy poetry in my poetry class, Amy Gersler and Yusuf Komanyaka and oh, oh, I don't even remember everything, all kinds of stuff. But I was like, oh, okay. So literature is not a like dark leather bound room Mm -hmm. where there's like creaky chairs and the like cool library ladder that goes up to the top. Literature is like a wild and ridiculous forest where there are like orchids the size of a sequoia tree and also a sequoia tree and then a like bog filled with like murky creatures crawling out of it and like oh that's so fun (laughs) I love this because I hadn't really gone to high school and I always felt like I was behind like I wasn't the reader I was supposed to be and I didn't know any of the classics and I was like I don't know. I'm going to fail. I'm just going to try to like get like, you know, get through this sort of. And that semester, I remember it all came together and it felt like, no, that's not what any of this is about. This is about trying to answer unanswerable questions and about each individual person coming to the work as themselves and trying to make something and add their little voice to the big pot. Like we're all just adding a drop to the ocean and none of us can add more than that. So did you set out to answer the questions you wanted to with Last Animal? Yeah, I think I did. I think I wanted to ask what the sort of ask toward the the possibility and limits and problems of the human right. imagination. What what if we could do anything? Should we do it? What mm-hmm. what are the consequences? How do we live with our own creations after the spark of joy and fun has passed and it's time to be caretakers and follow through. And how do we love each other in a planet that is in the state that it's in? I feel like consequences are a thing that most people just don't even want to think about anymore. Yeah, exactly. I really like, I don't mean to sound all doom and gloom because honestly, The Last Animal is truly a hopeful book. It's fun. It really is fun and it's hopeful and it's a little wild, but consequences are really And like we're seeing it too, not just in the conversations about AI and other stuff, but like the conversations about what we teach and how we teach and whose story gets told and all of these things when ultimately, yeah, I'm just a little concerned about us as people. Oh, totally. I mean, just kind of like, we're not good with consequence thinking. Yeah. I not think ahead. We're just like, well, we could make a robot that does the thing. That's so fun. And then we just make it. And then like, are yeah. we don't, we just, we, that's what we like. We want the immediate instant cool thing. I mean, I think about like the, one of the things I thought a lot about when writing this book was our, our evolution and right. they, our early selves, the people and the versions of humans and early humans who were hanging out with woolly mammoths who like mm-hmm. we co-evolved with that animal, right. the elephants created the Santa in Africa. And that is what allowed us to spread out and grow things and collect and like we we are who we are because we had elephants and then later mammoths and they there's all these beautiful cave paintings and like caves in the south of france of of all woolly mammoths and we use their bones as like early architecture 
So I was thinking about the versions of ourselves who I think is still feels like we're maybe that's part of the appeal of bringing back that particular animals that it like maybe we kind of get to go back to the sort of better version of ourselves and start over again. And, and, and I don't know what, I don't, I mean, as if we think we're going to do something differently this time, of course, we're going to do it exactly the same way. We'll keep, we'll keep being our terrible, ridiculous, beautiful selves. Of course we will. (laughs) But like, what is like, what is the essential humanness? And like, think about the, you know, sitting around and having a spark, like we've got, now we have fire and now we have like the way we want to go so quickly forward and to keep inventing and trying. It seems like there's something essential about that in us. And most of the time, not maybe not most of the time, who knows? Some of the time we make something we then don't know how to deal with or take care of. And other times we make something amazing and great that is magical. And I love the sort of hope of that creation, Mm -hmm. even when it goes wrong. Mm -hmm. But it feels so scary to have that kind of power, to have the brain that we have and the hands that we have. Like between those two things, all sorts of creations occur. To a lesser scary degree, though, is that why you teach that idea that you can, that we can create whatever essentially we want to? I mean, you're writing about climate change and you're writing about our obligations to the planet and our obligations to each other and, you know, parenting, which not easy stuff. Like these are all really big ideas and we get a really fun novel with great voices in it and a woolly mammoth. But (laughs) why do you teach? Why not just write full time? I think a lot of it is what I was saying about that sense that literature is something and art in general and everything is something we can only all make together. Right. I couldn't, even if I had all the time in the world, first of all, I'm just going to have one lifetime, which is not really very long. And Mm -hmm. even if I used every waking minute of that time, I would only write a certain number of books and they would only be out of me. And that is not what we need. We need all of the voices. We need the, the whole thing. We need to document and try to understand as much as we can of what it feels like to be alive at our moment. Like we are writing the literature of this moment and it's a collective project. So I feel like it's such a privilege to get to work with a bunch of writers who are going to do parts of that job that I could never do. And to get to be there to like offer a little step stool or a little scaffold or a little bit of just like waving my pom-poms around. <laughs> like I know that you can make this happen. I taught a novel writing class this semester And the students in my class each wrote 100 or 150 pages of a book that I could never have written. And that is so lucky and amazing. And I'm just like to get to see them do it. And they all started on page one and none of them thought they could do it. And all through the semester, they had so many questions. And it was because we were there together Mm -hmm. that it happened. That's a really cool job to get to have. I mean, nothing quite captures a moment like art, like reportage is its own thing, right? Like yeah. journalism is its own thing. But sometimes you need the art to really make it sit with you. Like it's not, mm. the facts aren't always enough, which sounds really yes. weird. Um, especially when we're living in a moment when disinformation is really wildly out of control. But yeah, I think sometimes you need the emotional truth more than you need the this happened on this date at this time and these mm-hmm. people were impacted. and. I mean, that's why we have fiction, right? That's yeah. why we have short yeah. stories. That's why we have novels. That's why they're so fun to read mm-hmm. because we can do whatever we want. Well, and we are creatures of story. That yeah. is how we understand everything. Facts like 
I mean, I don't have a sticky fact brain. Facts mm-hmm. are like bounce mm-hmm. right off. So I don't ever get to hang out with facts for very long because they just leave <laughs> me. Other people remember things better than I do. But even still, even the people who remember the facts, what they what they feel is the story. So if you want to convince somebody of something or or to understand something, what you need is to feel the story. And I feel like, unfortunately, it's why all of the mis- and disinformation has gone so far is because they've gotten good at telling it like a story and making us feel fear and making us feel hope and feel, making us feel like we're part of a of a group like you are, I'm telling you the story of this group and you are now part of that group and now you will do these things. Yeah. Yeah. It's a really powerful technology. And it's the one we've had since minute one. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I mean, yeah. years ago, someone told me that telling stories was the first truly human thing we ever did. And I'm like, yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. I, yeah. The form changes. Sure. You know, you get from painting on cave walls to scribbling with a pencil and it goes from there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Do you miss these women? You know, I haven't been missing them yet because I still get to hang out with them and talk about them a lot. I don't read any of my books once they're published. It just Mm -hmm. feels weird. It feels like not like just not. I can't do it other than when I'm reading aloud to Mm -hmm. people. But I still I don't know. I feel like they're still they're still hanging around in my in my mind. They don't really ever leave in a way that is really Mm -hmm. wonderful. And again, feels like one of the just like there's a lot of parts about being a writer that are hard. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the pieces that is just pure wonder, like that I get to invent things. And then they become real enough to me that they don't go away. I can like dip back. I mean, even earlier books that I don't remember the details of the books. Right. I haven't read my first novel since it came, you know, before it came out. Right. So there's many things. Sometimes people will come up to me at a reading and be like, you know, that part where whatever, I'm like, I don't remember that, <laughs> but I'm glad you do. <laughs> But still, like there's a, there's I could I can go back to the village where that novel takes place in my mind mm-hmm. anytime, and it still feels like it's a place that that really exists for me. Yeah, so I, they haven't left. I'm, I've got them. Is there anything you do reread or have reread that's sort of become a seminal text for you, just as a fun thing, or is it just there's so much to read? Not everyone goes back. Yeah, I like to go back, actually. The novel Mrs. Bridge by Evan S. Connell. Oh, I love that book. Isn't that such a good book? I am completely wild for that book. I haven't read it in a minute. I reread it for an interview last year, but it is crazy great, that book. It's so great. It's so great. And it's all written in these little vignettes. So it's a book that you can go back to and read and dip into and just read a few little pieces at a time. And it is... It's about a woman in in like mid-century Kansas City, upper class white woman who is so sad and everything is going wrong. And it covers her entire lifetime, but it's in these tiny little crystalline moments. Oh, it's just like the amount that is in there in so few words is incredible. That book, I just, whenever I'm stuck, I'm like, just like read a few of those. That always feels good. George Saunders does always like yep. the, just the like the electricity of that language is always great, especially early stuff. I still read poems sometimes when mm-hmm. it feels like I need a little a little zap of something. I love Amy Bender. I love Louise Erdrich. Louise Erdrich is another writer who mm-hmm. I feel like I can get the like the between the 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 sort of like crackly invention, mm-hmm. the way that mm-hmm. things feel like they are like alive in a way that it surprises me. And she has this amazing ability to do both like big, big story stuff and super careful 
gorgeous sentences and paragraphs. That combo is like, that's me. I love that. <laughs> yeah. It's also really, really hard to do. I know. It's so hard to do. Really hard it's to do. so amazing. Yeah. You know what? We're dangerously close to spoilers. You and I just had a little aside <laughs> that we're not going to share with you guys because again, I know the book has been out in the world and the reviews actually have been really smart about not giving up all of the stuff because there are times where I get really frustrated with the reviews. I'm like, why did you, I, what just, ha- like, why did you just reveal that? That's insane. Anyway, so we're just going to let readers come to The Last Animal because it's great. And then there are two more story collections and two more novels if people want to go back. But Ramona, thank you so much for joining us on the show. This was so much fun. <laughs> it was so wonderful to talk to you, Mima. You're like the, the ideal interviewer because you ask about everything that I care about. It was so fun. Excellent. Well, you know what? Let's do it again with the next one. Yeah, let's do it. All right. Thank you for listening. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. To help other readers find us, please rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts.